In Hellraiser 1, Clive Barker showed you his vision of a private hell. In Hellraiser 2, he took you on a journey inside the inferno. Now, the terror returns in mankind's final confrontation with evil. And this time, it's going to be Hell on Earth. You're very excited. I'm very excited. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome back and happy Halloween season. We, uh, uh, I am Sam. And I am Will, playing with the the Lament configuration. The easiest puzzle box in the world. (laughs) Anyone can figure it out just by kind of futzing around with it in their hands for about five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it is shockingly easy. Uh, obviously burying the lead, we are talking this week about, uh, a classic Will Morey sloppy baby, <laughs> Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth from 1992. William, explain yourself. <laughs> well, okay, so, uh, the, the Hellraiser franchise is a, a little foreign to me. I've only seen the first movie. I hadn't seen any of the others. Um, the remake was coming out and I figured it'd be a good choice for this podcast and, Boy, was I wrong. Well, I mean... I, <laughs> well, maybe it was this, a good choice for the podcast. But. Yeah, I, 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 I won't lie. This movie was really dumb, but I, <laughs> I didn't hate... I had a good time watching it. It yeah. wasn't boring. No, you know, no. It's, and it is still, I would definitely say, like, at the, at the least upper middle class in the uh, Hellraiser <laughs> pantheon. There's a whole lot of movies in that series. It's true. Have you seen any of the others? I've, I've only seen the first. So. I've seen the first two. Um, and I'm sure I've seen some of like Bloodline or Inferno. Like if it was on like Encore or something. <laughs> uh, and I think I've maybe seen like Maybe I saw some of Hellseeker. That's the one in 2002, and that's the one that Ashley Lawrence, come, Kirstie Cotton, comes back okay. from the first two movies. Is back in that, and she's married to the Beeper King, and uh, it's all about <laughs> like uh, she dies, and he doesn't isn't sure if he murdered her, if it's a nightmare or something. Anyway, and then uh, the, after that, I think is when it um it, it, he's he it, pinheads on the internet. And then it's Pinhead stops being Doug Bradley, and then uh, they remade the franchise. Finally, <laughs> they rebooted it. Yeah. Um, so in uh, preparation for this podcast, I watched uh, Hellraiser Two. Uh, Hellbound. Hellbound. Hellraiser Two. Um, and uh, uh, one thing about this series that uh, deeply upsets me uh, is uh, watching skinned people wander around and do things. Uh, yeah. Most notably, have sex and kiss, and it yeah. it, it upsets me on a visceral level. <laughs> not a not a House Bolton guy, not a not a flayed man type. No, no, no. I mean, this is this is pure. This franchise is pure body horror. Yeah, it's yeah. it's maybe. It doesn't bother me on the level of, like, Cronenberg body horror, which is usually, like, more grounded and therefore, like, way more disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. This is, like, a very much a horror fantasy franchise. And, you know, it came out of the mind of Clive Barker, who is uh, very much a, uh, an like, an author-turned-filmmaker. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and I think Hellraiser was his first movie. Yeah. Um, and it shows. I mean, I think that movie is very messy. Um, yeah. And very... I think it has a lot of good ideas, but I think it's... It, it has a problem where it's very clearly based on a short story and it's, it's, you know, very much the first two are very much like written by an author who has a lot of big ideas, but isn't necessarily like executing them perfectly on screen. And he's admitted that like in yeah. interviews, he said like, yeah, they're very uneven movies. I'll admit yeah. that, you know, yeah, I got, and, I got better. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, and we'll get into it. Um, but uh, but the, that first movie is just structurally so repetitive, which I don't think, when you're reading a story like that, I don't think it would be, because you're in the character's thoughts and feelings and everything, but it's just sort of like, kind of runs in place for a lot, and then everything happens in the last ten minutes. Yeah, it's got a lot, of, a lot of set pieces. Yeah. You know, there's some great makeup effects. Oh, like, yeah. And there's, you know, like, Frank's corpse, like, re, like reforming out of yeah. the floorboards. And obviously, the centerpiece of these, all these movies are the Cenobites, led by Pinhead. Right. And... Pinhead, I, he's one of the last, like, he gets lumped in with the slashers, you know, 80s horror villains, and he's not really, he's, he's, at his worst, he's, he, they try to make him Freddy Krueger, which you see a lot of in this movie. Well, he's like, like, Freddy Krueger if played by Lord Byron. <laughs> yeah, he's much more erudite than <laughs> yeah, Freddy. Yeah, yeah. Because he's, you know, he's, he's an Englishman, he's an, <laughs> and he's an actor. Yeah. You know, very much, <laughs> Doug Bradley is an actor. Uh, and he's great. Like he he yeah. sells that part. He's very. He doesn't. Oh, like at its best, he's not overplaying it. Yeah. And he's never phoning it in. And the design is just fantastic. All yeah. the uh, the Cenobite designs in the first two movies are all absolutely fantastic because they're just human enough, but they are just so. They're they're beautifully disgusting. Yeah, they're really. At. Yeah, they're really gross but they're they're gross and and weird in a way that you just can't stop looking at them when they yeah. show up and the other thing about part two is that the sets are so cool yeah. um and like and the makeup effects and everything um it, you know it's again my my problems with the franchise are really there's i have uh, these days uh, because i watch a lot of movies while my son is asleep, I have the subtitles on, um, and because uh, you know, want things quiet, uh, and a lot of uh, flesh squishing in the <laughs> subtitles. <laughs> that's that's like I was I was watching. Um, they were on at the same time over the summer. I was watching Star Trek: Strange New Worlds and Obi Wan Kenobi. And I watched I watched stuff with the the subtitles on too, and it became a competition of like. It, the drinking game with those two for Star Trek, take a shot every time a door whooshes open. <laughs> and with Obi-Wan Kenobi, it was just take a shot with heavy breathing. Heavy breathing. Just every... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, this is like, unlike the uh, like some of the other like 80s horror, I didn't get it. I was never really a Hellraiser guy. I Like we've talked about this before. They were like too scary. Yeah. Like I yeah, knew like, oh, I, I don't want, like uh, I'm like, Freddie and and Jason have me curious, but Hellraiser, like I don't want to go to that club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It looked it, the from the bo video box covers. It looked dangerous. It looked like a world I didn't want to take. I didn't want to look into. It just it it was. Uh, 
it was off limits to me. It wasn't even like my parents told me I couldn't watch it or anything. It was like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't find them particularly disturbing just because no. they're so fantastical. Yeah. It's like, like I was saying, like, it's not like watching The Fly where yeah. you feel like you're just covered in bugs. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, it's not like watching like The Brood or so I don't know. I, I keep coming back to Cronenberg, but like David yeah. Cronenberg or David Lynch or something like even more, you know, ph- psychological than that. Yeah, they don't, they, I don't find them, at least these first three, I can't speak to the rest, but I don't find them uh, unsettling in the way that like David Lynch can sort of like, some of his movies you watch them and it, i feel like it just it throws me for a loop for a week you know and i need to watch something else to get out of it <laughs> yeah no. yeah no it's it's they they, they they never they're all they're still like feel like they're all in good fun yeah you know exactly. they've got like a sense of humor to them and then like basically after the first two after clive barker stopped being like directly involved they became hellraiser three hell on earth at best where they're just <laughs> It, where it's like kind of a he's a he's Freddy Krueger, but he's also kind of the Terminator, and he's like a wisecracking like uh, slasher character, right? Yeah, and and this movie is so nineteen ninety two. It is yes. the most nineteen ninety two movie that's ever existed. <laughs> right out of the gate, that that shot of New York where you see signs for both. Miss Saigon and the uh, <laughs> revival of Guys and Dolls that I remember going to see with my parents with Nathan Lane and Peter Gallagher. But I just remember <laughs> that. It's like, oh, man, this is like this is this is the same New York that the Ninja Turtles hung out in. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And um, it also feels like the audio track for this movie was lost and everything was ADR'd. Oh, yeah, everything is ADR'd. <laughs> all, all, the, all the hell, the first three Hellraisers all feel ADR'd in some yeah. form or another because it's all like yeah. British people playing Americans. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but like this movie, I love the, the club in this movie is oh my God. just cracks me up. It feels like. It's called the boiler room, and it's got like a the flaming sign outside, and it's it's a grunge metal punk club that also has a fancy restaurant with a string quartet attached to it. It and it it is all it it feels like the phony version, like the the clubs that Wayne and Garth go to in Wayne's World feel more real than this. Like the gasworks in Aurora, Illinois, feels more legit than the boiler room in Hellraiser 3. Yeah, I mean, this, this, it feels like, you know, uh, uh, I guess Clive Barker is, was, I don't know, maybe still is, uh, into, really into, like, the BDSM scene, obviously. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but, um, but apparently he would go to these clubs that were, like, so gnarly that you couldn't have any, out. you had to be stone cold sober to go to them. Like yeah, like it, but it seems like this is like the Hollywood version of that. <laughs> like, no, this doesn't feel like. I don't expect to like. This is not a club you go to see like Gigi Allen play. At. Yeah. This is like, this is a club where they've got a house band named Armored Saint, and they play <laughs> just the most generic like, like grungy like like thrash metal. I don't even know what it's like. It's just like a genre of headbanging that feels like a mashup of different things. And it's run by one J.P. Monroe, who appears to embody every 90s douchebag aesthetic in one. Because he's like, he's the greaser thing, because that was back in the 90s. Everyone wanted to look like a 50s greaser. And he's like, he's an art collector. 
and he's you know like he he like will give out roses to people and he's just like this well roses co- to the women he wants to sleep yeah, to, with he, yeah. he that he wants to have sex with and then and then dump he is making choices as a <laughs> as a performer yeah, yeah he is uh yeah it's like how sleazy can this this dude uh perform or act and uh there's a chunk of this movie that feels like little, like the original Little Shop of Horrors or Bucket of Blood, right? Like, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, you, you, you <laughs> it sets up. So, like, J.P. Monroe picks up the, uh, there's, at the end of Hellbound Hellraiser 2, there's, like, this tower that comes, that, like, has all the imprisoned Cenobites in it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, like, it's, like, a, like, a, and then, so, like, in this movie at the beginning, he buys it from a guy that looks like Chris Christopherson, but isn't, uh, and uh, takes it back to his club. And one of the, you know, like floozies he's hooking up with gets her blood on it and it it eats her skin. And that wakes up pinhead and pinhead's been imprisoned in it. So at first it's just his head sticking out of it. Like, and his body's (laughs) still like, like stuck inside like a mummy. But he basically says, I need you to bring me more fresh souls. And you think it's going to be like, J.P. Monroe is like the is like the hapless douche that's being promised power and like almost like a Renfield, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's not. It, it's kind of a a, a a a like a cul-de-sac because it doesn't really, right. It like, doesn't he, go anywhere. The, the next girl anything. that he brings in is Terry, and that right. gets him killed. Right, and then she becomes a Cenobite or something. Uh, yeah, she becomes a Cenobite. It's she's called the Dreamer Cenobite, I think. But, but her thing is smoking through her trachea. I guess. I don't look. Look, this. Look, <laughs> what, right. We'll get that movie, to the, the movie goes off the rails. At, we'll like, get to the, the Cenobites at the end of this movie that even Pinhead's slightly embarrassed about. <laughs> um, but the main character of the movie is uh, Joey. I feel like this might have gotten the, the, my captions might have been getting this name wrong. Joey Summerskill. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, it. All right, yeah, uh, that's at least uh, what my captions were saying. So she's a she's a, a an ambitious young reporter. Uh, doesn't feel like she's getting good uh, like uh, good stories. She has her like cameraman who's like a cool like trucker looking dude, yeah. and uh, uh, she basically like is investigating this kid who got killed by this like the i guess by the lament configuration in an alley outside the boiler room and that leads her to this girl terry uh who's a homeless who's a homeless teenager but looks like she's 25 well i don't know if she's a teenager or not because she's i mean she's sleeping with she was sleeping with jp monroe and then there's definitely like lesbian implications between her and joey yeah uh that aren't like spelled out but it might as well be a love triangle. <laughs> and so she's investigating that just leads her to, uh, like she kind of, this, there's, I, I don't know. There's, I don't remember. Oh, she has to, she gets, starts getting visited. I, I fucking don't even remember this movie already, but there is, I was like, what, what happens? Yeah, she, some, what, she gets, I'm like, I'm like writing my own script in my head. I'm like, what's my act two? She gets, uh, she, she gets, well, I mean, it's not even an act two. It's like an hour into this movie. And then, then she finally gets visited by the mortal form of Pinhead. Yes. Uh, uh, Captain Elliot Spencer. Right. Who is trying to defeat Pinhead, uh, from his astral plane or wherever he yes. is. Apparently, after the events of Hellraiser 2, Pinhead, who... Elliot Spencer was turned into Pinhead. He became a Cenobite at, after he opened the Lament configuration, dealing with his trauma from World War One. Right. Uh, 
That's cool. That's cool. That's that's <laughs> that's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, that, but it's all from Hellraiser two. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he, after the events of Hellraiser 2, he has been split. So Elliot Spencer's spirit and Pinhead are two different things. And Pinhead, that's, at least they kind of come up with a reason why Pinhead is now just kind of a maniacal, like, Freddy Krueger type. Right. But he finds Joey because Joey's having dreams about her dad getting killed in Vietnam. And apparently a dream of one war is a dream of all wars. Right. So he's like, well, I'm in World War One, so we'll just patch me in. <laughs> <laughs> he needs her help to like fuse them back together to which i guess will send pinhead back back to, to hell. hell yeah like no, nothing not this movie doesn't touch on any of the like uh stuff that's set up in the second movie about the the leviathan or like the gods that they worship or right. the world they inhabit it's also not like he, the cenobites aren't necessarily villains there's an ambiguity to them. They, as they call themselves, they're explorers in the furthest reaches of experience. So they're going to cause you incredible pain. But they kind of, on a certain level, in the first two movies, are giving you what they think you want. Right. Or what? Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like too much of a good thing. Is yeah. is, is the idea right? I mean, that's kind of what happens to Frank. He opens the lament configuration and then goes into that weird world and then experiences pain and pleasure beyond yeah. his understanding. And we, they, they're, when they say, we'll tear your soul apart, they don't necessarily mean it as a threat. It's more yeah. of a promise. Right. It's, and that's what makes them interesting. And again, I don't think either of the first two movies delves into this as much as it could. Well, it, it's it's part of the problem is that it's like, it's too complicated to yeah. like it, to explain in in a 90 minute movie and what you want from a movie like this is like very we talked about this when we when we did, talked about halloween kills is mm. you want kind of like clearly defined rules for your movie monsters yeah and, and the cenobites just don't it's so amorphous and so like cerebral that it's really hard to sort of like figure it out in those in the first two movies. Yeah, it, I mean, again, this is all ties back to these are movies made by a, an, an author, author. by yeah. a, like a novelist, <laughs> yeah. you know, where you can have room to expand on those ideas. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's the same reason why it's up until up until Mike Flanagan came along. Nine times out of ten, adapting Stephen King was just a real motherfucker. <laughs> Yeah, he yeah. somehow figured it out. I don't know how, but uh, it's yeah, it's and then obviously Hellraiser three isn't going to expand on any of that. It's just going to be like taking the 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 base elements that people remember from the first two and just causing mass chaos with them. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's clear that you know whenever it was that dimension. This is like one of the first Dimension movies, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And whenever it was that Miramax got that, their hands on it, they clearly thought, well, this can be our horror franchise to match up with A Nightmare on Elm Street or or uh, a Friday the 13th. By the time you get to 1992, the slasher genre is pretty much dead. Like, yeah. uh, New Nightmare is going to come out in a couple years and flop. Jason Goes to Hell, I think, is the year after this, and that was a disaster <laughs> yeah one of the reasons why we only just got a hellraiser reboot this year is because those really cheap last couple hellraiser movies the ones without doug bradley were just kind of the it's not confirmed but the rumor is that the weinsteins just kind of made those as quick and dirty as possible to keep the rights at right. the weinstein company so that they could eventually reboot it and obviously uh that didn't come to pass uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> for a whole host of reasons. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of setting up rules, I, I, the, the reboot does do that. It does expand the mythology and expand, like, what the Lament configuration represents and why would you... Uh, even bother playing with it and like what is it you're you want what is it leviathan can give you right and you know it's it's still like it's still just very much like it i feel like it's either you need less like like you need to either just give give up and make hellraiser three or you do the other route which is like you go the six episode like mini-series and really let it breathe and really explore like explore this stuff beyond just the aesthetics of pinhead yeah yeah i just i feel like the cenobites are and i haven't seen the reboot yet but it's again i we were talking about before we recorded it there is a very low bar that is the hellraiser (laughs) franchise at this point and and it and it it got over that quite nicely the cast is really good um they they reimagined pinhead in a way that's familiar but different enough to kind of stand on its own and there's some cool design stuff in it yeah. and it's all set in the berkshires in massachusetts oh, that's kind of fun so like then it's like they're in a, and part of it's in a city that's not far from the berkshires so i'd like to think this is the first horror movie set in like worcester <laughs> so i'm just that's my that's my uh mythology for the new hellraiser i but, think uh, that's i think that's great uh, but no, I just I feel like the Cenobites are just are just too cerebral, really, for for these kind of movies. I think you're right. I think it needs to be a TV a TV show to really dig into like these concepts and ideas and and mythology and lore, and not have it feel either completely esoteric or, as in the case of this movie, uh, it just becomes basically various variations on Freddy and his gimmicks. You know? Yeah, it's like, it would be cool to have a, a movie set in the wake of World War One, where it's a character dealing with their, their, basically their trauma from the war, and the only way they can process that is to just seek out this, you know, hell dimension. Uh, well, I, or, or just, yeah, I mean, like, it just... The progression from I'm go- I I need to, you know, you you'd sort of think it, it starts with like sex, drugs, and and alcohol, and and you know trying to drown my sorrows in that, and then it sort of builds and builds into bigger and bigger things until you're finally like I'm going into this Indiana Jones temple to find this box. <laughs> I think yeah, and the new movie definitely the new movie returns to uh, the cliche the trope of the um. The, the, like, weird art collector, which I feel like is a real, like, there's a lot of that in this movie, and I feel like that was a real, like, early 90s thing. Like, this yeah. movie has some, like, I, I miss 90s New York City loft sets. <laughs> like, like this, Ghost, yeah, uh, yeah. that segment of New York stories with Nick Nolte, uh, you know, like, where he's a painter. And uh, uh, April O'Neil's loft in, uh, in, yes, in, yes. in, in Ninja in, Turtles. Ninja Turtles, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know, I miss those. You don't have those anymore. <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, and like, you know, this movie is not good the acting is really bad i mean it doesn't help that it, everyone's been 80 yards so it just yeah the performances aren't great terry farrell's not great in this this was like a year before she did deep space nine which she's yeah. much better on she's great on star trek but it was like a it's yeah it is everyone's 80 yard and the performances are all really awkward and it's all made even more awkward by the fact that doug, doug bradley is doing the like 
Max von Sydow thing where he's going to come into a really schlocky movie and just out-act everyone. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. And it also, this movie blatantly lifts from other horror movies of that oh, era. Yeah. Like, like, you've got Dead Dad flashbacks from Silence of the Lambs. You've got Vietnam flashbacks from Jacob Slatter. you got Poltergeist TV static. You've yeah. got a bunch of people at a party being brutally murdered, like, in Carrie. I, like, I could keep going. It was, like, at some point I started keeping track because it was just so blatant. Yeah. And it's yeah. all hinging on a plot where the hero is investigating and learning stuff. Also, like like Terry Farrell, Terry the the actress playing Joey, <laughs> who is friends with Terry the character. Joey is is spending the whole movie investigating and learning about information that the audience already knows. Right, or or can intuit if they haven't seen Hellraiser 2. I mean, there's like a whole section of this movie, it's about 15 minutes that's just a recap of, of yeah, Hellraiser yeah, 2. Yeah, 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 Doug Bradley, uh, Captain Spencer shows up and is like, <laughs> previously on Hellraiser. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, uh, it just kind of, it kind of meanders along, and then, and then in the last, like, 15, 20 minutes, this movie goes bug nuts insane. Yeah. It's it's like it is it is basically like what happened to the WWE in the early nineties where they started giving all the wrestlers occupations. Uh, Pinhead shows up at this at at the boiler room and murders everyone there, and in the process creates a new group of Cenobites, all of whom uh have like jobs. <laughs> He's there's a cameraman Cenobite. Uh, who has camera in his eye that yep. uh, is constantly and is constantly auto focusing. <laughs> yeah, he's constantly focusing and blowing your head off. There's a bartender Cenobite who breathes fire and walks around with a, a cocktail shaker. Uh, <laughs> Terry becomes the dreamer Cenobite who doesn't really do anything. Uh, JP Monroe <laughs> becomes, oh yeah, she does have a cigarette, uh, like a big old tracheotomy that she smokes <laughs> out of. And then JP Monroe is the uh, piston head Cenobite and he starts acting like Biff from Back to the Future. <laughs> or more, more accurately, he's acting like Griff from Back to the Future too. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, then, of course, DJ Cenobite, <laughs> who is, has a head, made, head full of CDs sticking out of it and doesn't even spit CDs. He literally like loads one into his hand and does like a robot, like a Terminator move and throws it at you like he's the Predator. Or, or uh, do you remember that movie, I Come in Peace? Oh, or, yes. or Dark Angel? The, yes, the, yes, yes. Either, who, e the either one. Alien who fires CDs. But uh, why are the Cenobites like cyborgs in this? It is so weird. And they move and they have like that... <laughs> like the robocop noise like. they all walk like robo the guy who played robocop and robocop 3 where they can't <laughs> see what they're doing yeah. uh uh bartender cenobite is peter atkins who wrote hellraiser 2 and 3 oh. uh, and he he has in interviews he's been like i can't complain i got to be a cenobite in this one i can't hate this movie how can you not i mean <laughs> yeah. like if I was working on this movie, I'd be like, I want to be a Cenobite. Uh, yeah, like, and the and the director of this one had previously done the Waxwork movies, so he was more of like a horror comedy guy. Uh, Very okay. different than, uh, like, Clive Barker directed the first one. The second one was directed by Tony Randell, who, did, who basically had the career you would have had in the 80s. Will. <laughs> he would go on to direct the live-action Fist of the North Star. Oh, and, God, okay. And prior to this, he had done the... Uh, American edit and directed the American scenes for Godzilla 1985. <laughs> that makes sense because that was a New World thing, and that and yeah, okay, it was like a New so World. So I'm guessing he's the one that did all the the Raymond Burr inserts <laughs> for that. 
I remember Godzilla. <laughs> Raymond Burr looking thoroughly bored. Yeah. <laughs> it is unintentionally, like, everything that's supposed to be horror in this is unintentionally hilarious. Like, all, like when Pinhead massacres everyone in the uh, uh, nightclub, it's hilarious. Like, well, the, de- it, the DJ <laughs> suddenly looks up and there's all these CDs floating <laughs> over his head, and he's kind of like, far out. And then they stab him. <laughs> And the woman, like, hell, Pinhead comes out of the woman's drink and right. laughs at her and then turns into ice and stabs her in the face. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, like, that that whole nightclub scene is just bananas. And, and, and like, it's so off from what the movie has been doing up until that point. Yeah, like, the movie kind of played it, is trying, it feels like a watered-down version of the first two, but, like, still yeah. in the spirit of them for the first two acts. And then in the third act, it just turns into, like, the worst nightmare on Elm Street you could come up yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, Doug Bradley's doing his best, but, like, it's so, so strange. <laughs> I do love that when, it, when he's introducing his new, new Cenobites, he's just like, they're not as good as the first ones. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm doing I, my I, best. I, I was on a time crunch. I just... I'm sorry. I, I, I thought it would be funny. Now I'm just embarrassed. <laughs> Okay, so I haven't seen Hellraiser 4, right? That's the one that with Adam Scott that takes place in the French Revolution and in space, right? And in, and in the present day. In uh, it, That one's basically the origin of the Lament configuration. Okay. Hellraiser, called Hellraiser Bloodline. It was the last one in theaters. Uh, I forget the actual director, but he was so fed up with working on it that it became an Alan Smithy movie. That's right, that's right. But yes, it, 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 it's... There's one one actor plays like three different like v- members of his family over history, and he accidentally opened a portal to hell in the past in like uh, revolutionary era France, <laughs> and he builds the lament configuration to try and close it. Uh, okay. And then in the present day, he's an architect, and he builds that building you see at the at end the of Hellraiser Three that looks like the lament configuration. But- and then in the future, he's built a giant like lament configuration space station and he's trying to trap the cenobites that way uh and that's that's all i got <laughs> so so here's my question do the 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 cenobites in this one do they show up in that one or or is it are these are one and done cenobites is it are we back to the chatterer and all those it's the uh, they, it's he takes in the, the he gets a whole new gang he gets a <laughs> woman named angeline who kind of becomes his female number two he gets uh, two twins that he turns into kind of like a two-headed Cenobite. Okay. And then, uh, not the Chatterer, but he has like a Chatterer dog. The Chatter okay. Beast. So, I don't, I don't know. Why am I, I haven't seen it. I, I, why do I know this? God. Uh, but, no, this was substantially less intense a viewing experience than Toy Story 3. Yes. Uh, this did not yes. get me reflecting about any aspect of my life. <laughs> no, except I... maybe that I kind of miss the early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> it, it made me reflect on, wow, the greaser look has come back since the 50s at least three times, <laughs> and I don't understand why. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those where, like, bell bottoms, where they sort of, like, circle back every so often. You're like, why is this a thing again? Well, I mean, uh, kids are, like, practically wearing Jinko jeans again now. I, yeah. I I see them get out of school around here, and I basically want to be like, hey, are those Bugle Boy jeans? <laughs> Just to see if maybe they are. <laughs> like, yeah, like, it's, 
it's not it hasn't gotten quite to chain wallet level but like those kind that look is back yeah basically the baggy look is back in ah oh jinko jeans mm-hmm. yeah it's it's it is it is full ba with a ba out there <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. there's there's not much to talk about hellraiser no, 3 really i mean if you like the first two and you want you want more Pinhead, you're gonna get plenty of Pinhead. It's real, real dumb. It's it's, it's also like 95 minutes long. Yeah, it's a breeze. I is, is it? It's it's in the RoboCop three neighborhood, but I'd say it's actually less boring than RoboCop three. Yeah, yeah. I mean this this feels a little more like. I mean, I, I mean again, there's there's a bunch of narrative cul-de-sacs and it sort of doesn't figure out what it, the story it wants to tell until like 30 minutes before it ends. It's but, a uh, textbook, uh, third, third, like a textbook part three where it's them. We're like, they're doubling down and they're like, we got it. We're going to make this a franchise come hell or high water. And <laughs> it's just not built for that. It's not, yeah. it's not Freddie. It's not Jason. You know, the, there's, you don't have any of the characters from the first one. I mean, I think, like, the idea that you were just explaining about part four, about where the lament configuration came from, that's kind of an interesting yeah, expansion of the franchise. That And that was probably the last gasp. Yeah. Everything after that is just, you know, they're, they're, they're more, like, atmospheric and, you know, like, trying to be more, like, fantasy horror than, like, the Friday the 13th movies. But their reach uh, just uh, it, it reach out exceeds their grasp. You know, it's the reason yeah. that I honestly the reason why the Friday the Thirteenth movies work is because they have no ambition, right? And they they <laughs> like and that's the beauty of them. They're always like, we are here for one thing and one thing only, and that is Jason is going to hack his way through some people, yeah. and you're going to watch. And anytime they try to break that formula, it is a goddamn disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and and that's the thing, and and. I just, I think the Cenobites are just too cerebral to make a franchise out of, which is why they just become minions of hell. Or, yeah, or, and, that's, you know. and, and the problem is the first two movies are just vague enough with the rules that you can easily ignore them like this movie does. Because right. what is the limit of Pinhead's powers? Right. He seems to be able to just control the fabric of reality. And it's like the thing with like Freddy that works is there are rules. The thing with Michael Myers when he's working is there are some rules to him. That's, we've talked about this before. Like, you know, you have to have, if not like a, not a full on Jamie Kennedy set of rules to survive. You need right. like a structure or a framework or an arena like Pinhead only can access you from the hell dimension. Just like right. the same way Freddy can only get to you when you're dreaming. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it's like, pin, yeah, in this movie in particular, and the others, t to be honest, it's like, once that box is open, he can fucking do whatever he wants. And it's also in the first two movies, the rule is basically, they're coming because you, the, the, the you know, you opened the box and summoned them. Like, there's that, and it's not even that you, it's the person that, like, in the second movie, there's that moment where the, the girl in the hospital opens it, and he says, it is not hands that come call us, but desire. Desire, yeah. It's like, you have to, he, they have to think you want it. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah exactly. And You, you can, have to give informed consent, essentially. Right. Yeah, and, well, and you can bargain with them in the first yeah. two movies. You can, they, they aren't, like... They aren't like a Jason or a Michael Myers who like can't be reasoned with. They yeah. like or, they can. On, honestly, I feel like the analog in this movie is the Terminator. Yeah, yeah, 
yeah, they can, they will listen, they will at least hear you out. They will hear out your argument. Maybe they won't, yeah. you know, respect it, but they will <laughs> hear Yeah, and that's out. the thing. That's, that's why, like, yeah, yeah the re- reboot kind of went back to basics, and it, it, it didn't expand on the Cenobites so much as it expanded on how the Lament configuration works. And I think that was the most interesting part of the movie, because it gave the movie some structure yeah. and... It, it, it escalated things throughout the film and the characters were different from the first movie uh, and that, you know, so it's, it felt a little new and fresh. It just didn't, it's it's kind of like Michael Myers in that I question how much mileage you can get from the Cenobites, you know, yeah. or like relying on Pinhead as the centerpiece of these movies. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I mean, I, I can kind of understand why they went down this road, although I don't, think this movie really does anything with it but where it's like this is how pinhead was created and and you know this is how he needs to reconcile his two selves or whatever um i understand why they go down that road it just i don't think this movie explores that in any you know compelling fashion but yeah no i mean it's there's some there's nuggets of ideas in there that i think the writers tried to introduce it's just it's it's also you know it's it's dimension it's the right they, they they always like had their claws in these kind of productions and would just chop them to shit yeah. the moment they felt so inclined yeah or or yeah they're like eh, it's too long <laughs> yeah make it make it shorter yeah pretty yeah. much so yeah it's uh it's 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 a real dumb dumb it's a real <laughs> dumb dumb of a movie but it's fun i can't hate like like peter atkins i can't bring myself to hate it no i mean it's you know again it didn't it didn't feel, it wasn't, it didn't, I didn't feel like my time was wasted watching it. I, I don't think I'd watch it again. But... The best part of the movie is that Motorhead video. Yes. Because uh, that's got like <laughs> Lemmy shooting flames from his guitar and playing chess with Pinhead. Yeah, so it's got a, it's got a real good, that song at the end is a banger. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, not the, quite Dream Warriors, Warriors by Dawkins, but it's, it's up, close. It's, I'm going to say it's better than Pet Cemetery by the Ramones. Okay. All right. My my personal favorite is The Man Behind the Mask from Friday the 13th Part 6 by Alice Cooper. (laughs) And then there's also, uh, Freddy had also that rap he did with the Fat Boys. Get ready for Freddy. Yeah. (laughs) There any others? Any other, uh, what are, like, uh, Halloween never got one. Halloween never got one. No. Um, The Coupe de Villes did not do a track for for (laughs) Halloween 3, unfortunately. For those that don't know, the Coupe de Villes is uh, John Carpenter's band. Yes, it's a, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, director of Halloween 3, and uh, Nick Castle, the original Michael Myers. Right, and writer of, uh, or co-writer of Escape from New York, right? Correct, yes, yeah. that is correct. Obviously, uh, this is uh, we're recording this the night before Halloween ends, hits uh, theaters in Peacock, and I'm... I'm I'm sort of in I'm I'm ex- I, I'm looking forward to being able to close the book on this continuity so that they can inevitably begin development on the next continuity of the Halloween franchise. And we're going to get to that in a couple of weeks, but before we do that, I was really I there were a lot of places I could go cuz like there are horror part 3s for days. Yep. And I'm going to put it to you. I'm going to let you pick from 3. Okay. And All and right. uh and I will say, out of those three, only one of them, I think, will not require any additional reading, if you will. <laughs> All right. But you can choose, Will. You can have Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, starring Ken Forey and Viggo Mortensen. The Exorcist 3, starring George C. Scott and Brad Dourif. Or Psycho 3, starring Jeff Fahey. Oh. Ah. 
Sophie's Choice here. No, um... no, not even slightly a Sophie's Choice. People really need to stop doing that. Fair enough, fair enough. Sophie wishes this was the decision she had to make. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, no, I, uh, you know, I think I, I've never seen it. I've always wanted to see it. I think I, I have to go with Exorcist Part 3. I, I, I do want to do the other two at some point, but yeah. Exorcist 3 super underrated it i mean my understanding is it has the detective from the exorcist yes george c scott plays lee j cobb's character from the from the who's who's not a big character in the movie but in the book he's like a big character and has a lot to do and uh i when i first read the book he was one of my favorite characters in that um, so it's, uh, I'm intrigued to sort of see the movie. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. It definitely, it got complete, like completely re-shot and recut, and all this stuff got put in. But I honestly think it made it a slightly better movie because the original, I like the, there, it's sort of like Halloween 6. There was like a produ- a director's work print, like Alien 3. There was a work print out for a long time and it finally came out in kind of a rough form when Shout Factory put it out on Blu-ray. But like, and we'll talk about this next week. The ending of that version is so anticlimactic compared to the ending of the theatrical version. And I think it's one of those times where it actually, the theatrical version might be a little better. There's some significant differences that we'll go into. But it's, you don't need to have seen Exorcist 2. Right, uh, which John, I have seen, but... <laughs> oh my god. John, John Borman's Exorcist 2, The Heretic. This one is, it's very standalone. Right. Like it, you, it, there's not a lot of elements from the exorcist that find their way into this with the exception of like the exorcism element of it, which is right. still like kind of peripheral to the main plot of the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Like I said, I, I remember very distinctly, there are a lot of scenes in the book of the exorcist where that, that detective character is doing stuff and it's like a very main character and then in the movie which makes sense because you don't really need him when you no. Make the movie is much more about it's about uh, reagan and, and it's about and the it's the, about the, father the, father Karras. Yeah. it's jason yeah. miller who also is back in the in exorcist oh, three wow. in in uh, a, a limited form but you, you'll, you'll see and then <laughs> father dyer uh who's like their priest friend the one who plays right. the piano he's right. in the, his characters in this as well and he and George C. Scott have like a, a French friendship, you know, it's the cop and the priest and they're two different right. outlooks on things. It's, it's fantastic. Watch for Fabio. Oh yeah. Oh, he's there. That Fabio. <laughs> Is there any other Fabio? No, I, I don't. I, yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to Exorcist three. It's definitely, it's a much more ambitious movie than this. And it's, it's, it's one that really, it sticks with me. It's, yeah. it's got that. It's not as like, Whole, like grotesque as Jacob's Ladder, but it's got that. Uh, the first Exorcist kind of does this thing too, where it's like, just you get the sense from the character's point of view that like the world isn't quite right. Everything yeah. feels just a little off. Yeah. And this is like this movie has a lot, spends a lot of time in hospitals and at like and with at the police department, and it just feels like deeply uncomfortable in a lot yeah. of in in great ways. And it's also a great. 
you never see movies with uh, lead actors so fucking old. And, and and George C. Scott is so old and cranky in this movie, and it's fantastic. When was it made? Uh, it was made, was it the 90s? Or was it was it... 90, 1990, I think. Oh, wow. So around okay. around this time, but it doesn't feel aggressively 90s like this does. No, I'm intrigued. I've, I've always wanted to see it, and I remember... and as it's sort of been getting more and more cultural reappropriation and reappraisal, I've wanted to, uh, I've wanted to see it. So this will be a good excuse. Yeah, it's great. It is easily the best of the Exorcist sequels. That's uh, <laughs> not, not saying much. <laughs> that's a real low there's, bar well, there's there. Exorcist 2, Exorcist 3, Exorcist 4, and the other Exorcist 4. <laughs> right. Uh, which which one is it? Is it Exorcist Dominion, the prequel to the, to the Exorcist, there's and then Exorcist: The Beginning, and that's the right. Rennie Harlan version. And then there's Dominion, a prequel to the Exorcist, and I believe that's the Paul Schrader. I think right. did I that think one. So yeah. Ugh. God, Exorcist Two is so bad. That fucking movie is so bad. Talk about it trying to over-explain too much. Yeah. Ugh. Well, it's it's John Borman famously didn't like The Exorcist. Right. You know, it's like always a good place to be if you're taking over the franchise. Right. If you're making a sequel, oy. And there's locusts and uh, James Earl Jones. James Earl uh, Jones is there. Is a is a he's in Africa, right? Like, yeah. It's it, I think a big part of it is showing the exorcism that Max von Sydow, the uh, uh, Father Marin, right. did in Africa. Right. But different than the exorcism he did in africa in oh, those two prequel movies <laughs> when he was stellan skarsgård well next week exorcist three and until then will always a delight this one always was this one was uh just basically like like being made to eat more dunkaroos than i wanted but there's still dunkaroos <laughs> That's a good. That's a good way of putting it. Then, kind of, you know, a day later, twenty four hours later, you kind of forget the whole experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You're uh, you've moved on to other things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I as always, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, I hate it there, uh, but and it's okay. We only have twelve followers. <laughs> but until next week, will always a pleasure. And uh, I'm just gonna quote my favorite line from this movie. To press the stinking face of humanity into the dark blood of its beating heart. <laughs> I, I didn't write down any quotes from this. I love his quote in the first one where he goes, Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. <laughs> and then then the, the weird TV producer that is only in one scene. This is TV. No pictures, no story. That's... <laughs> oh, is that how it works? <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, that's it. I got nothing else. Nope. 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 There's nothing really much more to say. A Hellraiser three. Well, all right. All right. We'll see you next week for, uh, more Christian allegories. And Hooray! until then, this has been podcast part three, the part three podcast. Have a great night. <laughs>